Hello, America. Welcome to the Muni Lowdown Podcast. My name is Paul Graves, and I'm the managing editor for DebtWire Municipals. I'm coming to you from Boston, but have my talented cast of senior reporters from across the country joining me. From our New York office, we have Patrick Ferguson. Pat, what will you be discussing today? The Chester Water Authority is seeking to finalize a deal with the city of Chester and Pennsylvania to avoid a possible takeover utility and sale uh, to a private water company. But Aqua America is, is suing to stop the deal. All right. And from the windy city of Chicago, Caitlin Devitt, what's on your menu today? Hi, Paul. Um, well, also a lawsuit. I'm going to be talking about Dallas-based Preston Hollow, which has sued Nuveen in a high-profile case. Um, and the latest developments in that. All right. And finally, from sunny Miami, Simone Barbo. Simone, what's your topic for the podcast? I'll be talking about Puerto Rico court hearing, court coverage today. And this week was definitely a week of decisions and also Supreme Court appeals in the Puerto Rico bankruptcies. Uh, The big appeal was over whether oversight board members are federal or territorial. And the decisions, which were at the district court level, were over who exactly can bring avoidance actions to try to get the Commonwealth out of paying billions of dollars in in bond debt. All right. So uh, just a housekeeping note to our audience that we're recording on the afternoon of Thursday, April 25th. So this week, we're going to start out a little differently because we think it's time that people get to know a little bit more about our reporters. So we're going to be doing this reporter spotlight on a weekly basis until we cover everybody on the team. First up will be Simone for this week's Reporter Spotlight. The audience needs to know one thing about Simone. All right, America? Simone is not very nice to me. Anytime during the winter when I complain about the weather here in Beantown, she conveniently manages to find a picture of her and her daughter, typically, in some sunny area, walking around and having a great time. So that's the first thing you need to know about Simone. But beyond that, Simone, and how you treat me, how long have you been with us at DebtWire? Just to clarify, Paul, I don't conveniently manage to find it. I take it at that moment because I'm always wandering around somewhere gorgeous in Miami in the wintertime. I have been with you and you have been putting up with this for five years full time in May, I think. And then for about two years before that, I I freelanced uh, for you guys. So what drew you to the field of journalism? I was always interested specifically in financial journalism. I graduated college and worked for an economic think tank in 2002, 2003. And at the time, the housing bubble was bubbling up and I was working on that. It was obviously years before it popped, but it seemed like the thing that was most important to kind of everyone across the board, their lives on a daily basis was how the financial markets were were working. And I thought the media, I, I was interested in, in covering that. So this next question is really important because I know I have a very difficult time trying to answer this question to people when it's posed. So I'm really looking forward to hearing your answer. What do you enjoy most about municipal market reporting? You know, I think it goes back 
into just why I got into journalism to begin with. Municipal market reporting is at the heart of everyone's day-to-day lives. At DebtWire, we cover it from a little bit of a different angle, but at its heart, it's, it's writing about the schools our kids go to, the roads we drive on, the hospitals that we go to when we're sick. It's just about how we fund the things that make us function as a society. And what are your areas of coverage for us here at Debtwide Municipals? So I cover Puerto Rico courts and the other territories um, that have debt that aren't Puerto Rico, so the Virgin Islands and Guam and the, the Commonwealth of the Northern Marianas Islands, and also hospitals are the main things. Occasionally I, I branch out into other other aspects of muni bonds. Okay, so... Uh... What's your favorite movie? I don't know that I have a favorite movie, but I have been watching all over the past year. I have seen all but the last one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, so I am very much looking forward to seeing Avengers Endgame this weekend. Okay, and most importantly, did you take your daughter Lucy on an Easter egg hunt? Lucy went on three Easter egg hunts this weekend, one at daycare, one I took her to her friend's house, and one we did ourselves. So she she definitely got her fill of Easter eggs. She does not like the chocolate, which I find bizarre because I love chocolate, but, but she did really enjoy going around and picking up eggs, plastic eggs. Wow, you went all in on the Easter egg hunt, but we won't, we won't go into that. We'll, we'll just leave that there. Um, but let's get back to uh, why you're on the podcast, specifically the Puerto Rico court filings. There were a few different things that happened this week. Try to sum it up for us and the listeners. Okay, so the one of the major, basically two major things happened this week. The first one was that there was finally an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court over the First Circuit uh February 15th decision that financial oversight and management board members are federal officials and not territorial officials. This is significant for a number of reasons. The biggest one is that the oversight board can no longer function on May 16th. So that's coming up very quickly. If President Trump and the Senate don't appoint members under the appointments clause, which they haven't been yet, or unless either the First Circuit or the Supreme Court grants the state to extend that date so that officials can continue to act. So effectively, in a couple of weeks, Puerto Rico may not have anyone to represent them in the bankruptcy, no one to approve fiscal plans. Everything is just going to be frozen. And are there other ramifications to this decision? Yes, absolutely. So the decision goes to the heart of how much power Congress has over the territories. The the board is arguing that this is that the First Circuit's ruling is a radical departure from decades of established law and that there's no reason to treat these officials as though they're officers of the federal government when they work out of San Juan and are paid by Puerto Rico. And to say otherwise severely curtails Congress's power to govern the territories as it sees fit. Now, this could affect a lot of cases and people in territories beyond Puerto Rico, for instance. Does Congress have the power to say that people in territories get fewer social services like Medicare, Social Security, insurance, and food stamps than mainland residents? They currently, Congress currently has decided that 
they should get fewer social services. But this is something that's being litigated anew in a couple of cases now. So the Supreme Court decision, if it decides to take it up, or if it doesn't, the First Circuit decision could could affect the outcome in these cases. And also, and this is maybe more important from the federal government's point of view, it could mean that if the oversight board messes up in some way, and for instance, allows the diversion of money away from bonds that shouldn't be diverted, then the federal government may be on the hook to compensate bondholders. So there's a case going on now about this in the Court of Federal Claims. So if board members if board members are territorial officials, then you can't get the money from the federal government. They make a mistake, they make a mistake. That's just the way the cookie crumbles. But if they are federal officials, then you may be able to get money from the federal government. It's certainly not a sure thing, but it's possible. So you mentioned that several decisions had been made this week. About what? Right. So there was an omnibus hearing yesterday that dealt with, among other things, what role the Unsecured Creditors Committee, known as the UCC, would have in avoidance in, uh, in avoidance actions. Netwires, I, I didn't get to go, but Netwires, Maria Chechian covered that hearing. And the Oversight Board has said that it plans to seek to invalidate $15 billion in debt. It's already filed a motion to invalidate $6 billion of that. One of the things they've asked for in order to get this $15 billion is more time. They're running up against deadlines to file avoidance actions. The first is coming up on May 2nd, which is obviously very soon. And in order to claw back money paid over the four years preceding the bankruptcy, if it shouldn't have been paid, they need to, before then, specifically identify who payments were made to. So that's really detailed. For instance, if you, Paul Graves, owned Puerto Rico bonds back in 2015 and then sold them in 2016, they'd have to figure out that you, Paul Graves, received a payment in December 2015, but didn't in, in June 2016, then file a lawsuit to get the bond payment back. And there wasn't an indenture trustee on a lot of this debt. So they're having trouble figuring out who was paid what when. And Judge Swain said they have until the original deadline, so that's May 2nd in a lot of cases, to file those lawsuits. And the oversight board, at least according to the court filings, hasn't made much of a dent in figuring out who, who this money is owed to, judging by, as I say, judging by these court filings. Now, the other issue is that the oversight board and the UCC agreed to pursue these actions together as co-plaintiffs. It's unusual, and there were objections from a number of creditors. Usually you wouldn't have the UCC as a co-plaintiff, but Judge Swain yesterday allowed it. What she didn't allow, and what the UCC wanted, was for the UCC to be able to pursue claims itself that the Oversight Board didn't want to pursue. So the UCC was suggesting claims that looked like they never really spelled them out, but it looked like it was mainly going to be against underwriters, auditors, and former government development bank of Puerto Rico officials. So however much they could have gotten back in fees if they had pursued these claims, that part isn't going to happen. They're not getting that back. And for those of you that may be uninitiated in all of these Puerto Rico uh, court cases, Simone is referring to Judge Laura Taylor Swain, who's overseeing all of the Title III slash Chapter 9 bankruptcy cases in Puerto Rico. So are there any more hearings coming up, Simone? Yes, there is one next week. 
And it's a hearing on discovery in an employee's retirement system case over whether bondholders will get paid. And I know a discovery hearing, that's being held by the magistrate judge, not Judge Swain. I know it doesn't sound very exciting and it's procedural, but one of the arguments that's come up in this discovery is the system arguing basically, what do we need this discovery for at all? We were never obligated to honor our contract with bondholders because our sole purpose under the Enabling Act is to serve the public public interest by paying pensions and diverting money away from bondholders helped us do that so there's nothing really to have discovery into we were completely allowed to to breach a contract with with bondholders or whoever we wanted to because our enabling act didn't say that you know our purpose was to pay back bonds so that's i think a bit more colorful than what you see in your typical discovery dispute and it will certainly be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, thanks, Simone. So we'll take it back to the Midwest. Caitlin. Hey, Caitlin, before we get started, I just, cause I know you have a daughter, Frankie, as well. Did, did you go on like three Easter egg hunts? I'm just, that's, I'm still. We went, she went on one major one that lasted over four hours on the block. Oh, so you Okay, so you were heavy on the Easter egg hunts in a different way. Okay, all right. This is all new to me. Anyway, we will keep going and go to what you're going to talk about, this case with Preston Hollow and Noveen. Tell us a little bit more. Well, um, Preston Hollow, like I said, they're based in Dallas. They're five years old. They buy high-yield bonds. And in early March, they sued Nuveen, which is the biggest player um, in the high-yield market, Um, accusing Nuveen of intimidating broker-dealers and threatening to withhold the business from broker-dealers if they were, if the broker-dealers worked with Preston. And they called for, um, they called many of Preston Hollow's deals corrupt and rushed, according to the accusations in the lawsuit. So, of course, this lawsuit immediately got the attention of a lot of people in the muni industry because it shines a light on what for many of us is a pretty opaque area, um, high yield buying and selling, uh, I mean, you know, buying and selling of high yield paper, which is very competitive, and also the role of broker dealers with investment firms like Nuveen and Preston. So in the latest installment, Uh, Nuveen on April 10th has filed a motion to dismiss that also included basically its defense. And it says many things, it's sort of a long filing, but it boils down to basically, they're saying that the accusations from Preston Hollow really have no merit, but even if they're true, they're legal and they're frequently used in the market. Um, Nuveen says it has a fundamental economic right to choose who it wants to do business with. And then this is a quote, just because plaintiff does not like that conduct does not make it wrongful. Um, And as as for the defamation claim that um, Nuveen was was putting down Preston Hollow's deals, Nuveen says that only reflects opinions and it uses the kind of exaggerated persuasive language that's real common in the market. The firm also says that no broker dealers broke any contracts with Preston Hollow. So what's next? Well, we have a hearing coming up real soon next Tuesday, April 30th. Um, that hearing is going to be on Nuveen's motion to dismiss. That's going to be held in the Delaware Chancery Court, which is where the lawsuit was filed. Preston Hollow has 
you know, as I said, Nuveen filed that motion to dismiss on April 10th, or at least the public version of that. Preston Hollow has since replied to that, although that document's not yet become public. And then Nuveen is gonna respond to that response. Um, so next Tuesday, we'll see a hearing on that. And if the court rules in Preston's favor, um, and subsequently there's no settlement, then, then a trial is set for July 29th and 30th. Are there any other players involved? Yes, as a matter of fact, there are, um, you know, on a lower level, Preston Hollow over the last two weeks or since like April 12th has filed, has subpoenaed five banks. Um, that includes Bank of America, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley, Goldman, and Goldman Sachs, and Deutsche Bank. Um, Preston Hollow wants the banks to provide all communications with Nuveen, um, all communications they had with Nuveen about Preston Hollow, including, you know, recorded telephone conversations and other documents such as changes to tender option bonds and financing agreements that might reflect changes that the banks made because of Nuveen's behavior. Um, so those documents are due by the end of May, you know, assuming the case goes forward, those documents are due at the end of May. So typically when I think of lawsuits, I think of somebody wanting money, but you haven't mentioned it. So if Preston Hollow doesn't want monetary damages, what is it that they're seeking? Yeah, that, that is sort of unusual. They're, they've asked for a permanent, a preliminary and a permanent injunction ordering that, that would have the court ordering Nuveen to stop its behavior and also wants the court to order Nuveen to rectify the harm already caused um, and to direct Nuveen to adopt supervisory procedures to ensure that it doesn't do that kind of um, the alleged con, uh, conduct in the future. So, and Nuveen brought that up just like you did in its motion to dismiss. Um, Nuveen pushes back against the proposal saying that money is the quote, logical remedy for Preston Hollow's claims, not the kind of injunctive relief and supervisory changes that Preston seeks. So that's sort of another area that Nuveen pushes against in its motion. All right, well, thanks, Kayla. And But before we go any further, America, I got breaking news for you. We've been joined by our head of municipal research, Greg Clark who I call the E.F. Hutton of the municipal market. I noticed. That's also another way of saying that I forgot to induce, introduce Greg in the beginning, but that's all right. That was an accident. We're flawed. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I wanted to get you to take Greg on this in terms of this whole Nuveen lawsuit, because it seems almost like Nuveen is admitting that they, they used maybe some aggressive language, but they're saying that what they did wasn't illegal. I mean, have you seen an argument like this before? And what's your thoughts on it? I have not seen an argument uh, like that. Uh, I was a bit surprised. Uh, it's a, I, I guess uh, a lot of people would say it's a novel argument. Maybe it's not, but to me it is. It's, it's going to be interesting. That, that niche of the market has also been served by commercial banks. Uh, so it's, uh, I, I think the, the prospects for this kind of opaque market that we deal with, uh, it might be opened up a bit uh, as, as litigation unfolds. I think it's gonna be very interesting to see uh, if the uh, broker-dealers that, that uh, Caitlin mentioned are required to turn over all those documents and all of those incidences of contact with Naveen. I think it's going to be very interesting. All right, Greg, thanks for your thoughts on that. So, Patrick, we'll close it out with you. And the Chester Water Authority, which is located in Pennsylvania, Chester, Pennsylvania, 
what's going on there? Why is this important for our readers, excuse me, listeners to know about? The city of Chester has been under financial stress since 1995. But more than a year ago, Aqua America, through its local subsidiary, Aqua Pennsylvania, has been trying to buy the water authority. Its most recent offer was for uh, $320 million, which includes assuming some of the city's debt. City officials initially liked their proposal, see- seeing it as a way to put it back on better financial footing. But the Chester Water Authority uh, did not like the idea and eventually struck a, a deal with the city, agreeing to hand over $60 million. In exchange for the money, the city agreed to allow the Water Authority to place its assets in a trust for 40 years, essentially putting up a barrier from the city trying to take over the authority's assets in the future. And this is a rather new tactic from a public water system to stave off against privatization. So a hearing was held yesterday in the Delaware County Court of Common Pleas for the transfer of the assets to the trust. Is the deal likely to go through? Earlier this month, Aqua America sued the Water Authority in the same court, arguing that the, that the authority should not be able to raise rates on Aqua. To pay for the $60 million, the Water Authority plans to issue a bond for that amount and hand, and hand over the money to the city. To pay off the coupons, the Water Authority will have to raise rates on its customers by about 10%, and Aqua America is one of their wholesale customers. Aqua is arguing that the rate increase would be unlawful because the higher, higher rates would not improve water service or water quality or infrastructure. It would simply be used to pay off the debt. Uh, a little background on Chester Water Authority and Aqua Pennsylvania and their muni debt. The Chester Water Authority serves about 200,000 residents and businesses in the area and has about $80 million of outstanding debt. And Aqua Pennsylvania has about $60 million Uh, in municipal debt issued through the Pennsylvania Economic Development Financing Authority. Patrick, finally, who is Aqua America? Aqua America is a private water utility, uh, has counterparts like uh, America Water Works, and they've been buying up water systems across the country. Last year, Aqua America bought six municipal water systems. It expects to close on another nine transactions this year. These purchases began after states passed so-called fair value laws, which allow investor-owned utilities to raise rates on customers to recoup the money they spent on acquiring the municipal water system. In turn, they can give municipalities an opportunity to reap quite a bit of money in in one go. Uh, These laws are a newer trend. Uh, In the past few years, about 10 states have passed fair value laws. Uh, Pennsylvania legislators passed the state's fair value law, and I want to say 2016. All right. Well, thanks, Patrick. Greg, why don't you close it out by discussing an upcoming, very interesting webinar we're going to have next week. On uh, Wednesday the 1st at 1130, we are going to host a webinar on the impact of cannabis on state and local budgets. The exact title of the webinar is Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Afraid to Ask About Cannabis and Muniland. We're going to talk about uh, the current status of legalization in various states, the budget and credit impact on those states and or any localities, and the complications of legalization given federal law barring cannabis sales and marijuana use. 
This is an event that's free to everyone. And uh, if you are a subscriber to Debt Wire Municipals, you will see a link uh, in an article on our homepage uh, that you can go to and register. If you are not a subscriber, you can still participate. Uh, just send us, uh, inform us on Twitter at DebtWire underscore Munis, and we will uh, see that you are able to register for the event. Thank you, Simone and Caitlin, Greg, Patrick. Special thank you to our podcast producer, Andrew Cosentino, who we'll always makes sure that our mics sound right. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Look forward to talk to you next week. Take care.